Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts, the podcast about everything and nothing, with your host, 42. This week's topic is bacteria. So let's dive right in with fact number one. You've got a whole world in your belly button. 80% of Earth's vast oceans remained unexplored, with countless species yet to be discovered. NASA's Perseverance rover is searching for life on our closest neighbouring planet. But there's a habitat far closer to home that's teeming with thousands of previously unknown species. It's your belly button, otherwise known as your navel or umbilicus. Bacteria live all over our skin, but for a 2012 study, scientists focused on belly button bacteria because it's a habitat that's usually consistent from person to person, it's a relatively undisturbed environment. You don't usually go shoving ice cream in your belly button, at least I don't, don't know about you. And most people don't wash their navel as frequently as more exposed parts of the body. And finally, it turns out that we really do like contemplating our navels. People were genuinely intrigued by the idea of investigating what's in there, and the research project provoked wide interest and discussion about bacteria on social media, which was one of the researchers' goals. Wow, what a life goal, encouraging thousands of people on social media to talk about belly button bacteria. Everyone's got to have their place in the world, don't they? Despite the bad press bacteria get, the vast majority of it lives in harmony with us. They don't want to kill us and actually do us a lot of good. Our bodies play host to some 100 trillion good bacteria, many of which live in your gut. We've all seen the adverts for fermented liquid yogurts on the telly designed to make you repopulate your intestines with beneficial bacteria. And not only do we live in harmony with these helpful microbes, but they're actually essential to our survival, helping us digest food and absorb nutrients, and creating several vital vitamins, including folic acid, niacin, and vitamins B6 and B12 inside our intestines. And it doesn't just stop at your stomach. Scientists recently found bacteria on our skin that defends us, such as Staphylococcus, the most common family of bacteria found on the skin, which contains a molecule which inhibits skin inflammation. Bacteria in your blood stops your white blood cells from becoming too aggressive and attacking you. And all of your good bacteria generally keeps the bad bacteria at bay. In a nationwide citizen science project called Belly Button Biodiversity, scientists got volunteers to swab their navels and send the samples in for analysis. They analysed 66 belly button swabs and found that every single one had a unique bacteria footprint, made up of dozens of different species. In total, they counted 2,368 distinct varieties of bacteria from those 66 samples alone. The average belly button, whatever one of those is, had 66 species of bacteria living in it, with the most varied having three times as many as the least. Amongst them, they identified 1,458 species of bacteria that had never been seen before. One man had a type of bacteria that had only ever been found in soil in Japan, 
a country which he'd never visited. What the hell had he been doing? Another man, who it turned out hadn't washed for several years, yummy, was home to two bacteria species that usually live in extreme environments, such as on ice caps and inside thermal vents. After studying the first 25 navels, the scientists were able to predict the bacteria makeup of the subsequent 35 belly buttons. There were six species of bacteria that seemed particularly at home in all of the navels, and they found at least one of those six were living in more than 80% of the tummy buttons they analysed. And when one of those six did appear, it tended to dominate its habitat and was far more abundant than the rarer bacteria. Scientists think these six strains have evolved over millions of years to be particularly good at surviving in arid, dark crevices, like your belly button. One of the scientists rather poetically compared our belly buttons to rainforests, explaining that whilst in any given rainforest you might find plant varieties, ecologists can bet on there being a smattering of tree species that dominate, because they've evolved specifically to thrive in that habitat. The next step for these pioneering scientists of belly button research is to work out what these bacteria actually do for us, whether they have a symbiotic relationship with their human host, providing some kind of service for us whilst living rent-free on top of our stomachs, or whether they're just along for the ride. Next up, moment from history. where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, we go back to the time when a 12-year-old was put in charge of a Catholic crusade. The crusades began with the First Crusade, would you believe it, in 1095, when Pope Urban II sent a holy army to aid the Eastern Orthodox Church, which was under attack by the Muslim Seljuk Turks, to boost army numbers, he offered an automatic indulgence to anyone who joined the crusade. An indulgence is a promise of forgiveness for all prior sins. So, in theme park language, it was basically a fast pass to heaven. And from then on, all subsequent crusades came with similar special offers. Pope-promoted crusades continued until the 1400s, both with the aim of liberating Jerusalem and the Holy Land from Islam, a relatively new religion in comparison to Christianity, and to oust the Muslim Moors from Spain. They were usually grand, well-funded affairs involving a mix of noble knights, mercenaries, pilgrims, and a fair smattering of kings from various European countries. There were three at once in 1187, when Philip II of France, Richard the Lionheart of England, and the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick I all went to try and reconquer Jerusalem, which had fallen back into the hands of Saladin. Although Richard the Lionheart really buggered that one up and ended up just getting himself captured. Whilst of questionable military merit, the Crusades did fulfil one of Pope Urban's aims, which was to improve relations between the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches, which had broken down completely, so improving this relationship would bring a level of peace and harmony to all of Europe. They mended this bond between the two churches by focusing all their efforts and anger towards their mutual enemy, 
in the East. There's nothing like a common hate of another enemy to bring two enemies together. Some of the Crusades went well, and others less so. But few were as disastrous as the unofficial Children's Crusade of 1212. Yes, you heard that right. It wasn't really an official crusade, and it definitely wasn't Pope-approved. Organised and supervised trips for large children in the 21st century are difficult enough, and that's with all the benefits of modern communications, transport, education, and the internet. So the chances of an unofficial, unapproved jaunt across Europe by thousands of unaccompanied preteen children going to plan were never going to be high, were they? Even today, children are pretty shit at organising things by themselves. And this was the early Middle Ages when the chances of knowing what was in the next village were slim to none. But their lack of knowledge, experience, weapons, or even food, yes, they had no food, was made up for by sheer charisma and enthusiasm. It all began in May 1212, when a 12-year-old shepherd called Stephen from a small town near Orleans rocked up in Saint-Denis, north of Paris, where King Philip of France was holding court. The young Stephen gave the king a letter, which he said Christ had personally handed to him, instructing him to rally support for a children's crusade. Which all sounds rather lovely until you remember the fact that a crusade is not a party but stabbing Muslims. Yeah, as we'll find out, a, a tad ambitious for a 12-year-old. And sure enough, King Philip told Stephen to give up and go home, but he didn't. Instead, he stood at the steps of the Abbey of Saint-Denis, preaching his vision of gathering a bunch of children to go and fight heathens in the Middle East and save Christendom. He said, when they reached the sea, the water would part and they could pass like Moses through the Red Sea, and safe into the Holy Land. These inspiring sermons did the trick, and he soon had quite the following. Fired up by his success, he set off around France, summoning children to the crusade, and many of his disciples spread the message even further. They were all to congregate in Vendôme, in the centre of France, not far south of his hometown, from where they would begin their crusade. By the time the Vendôme rendezvous came, in June 1212, there were thousands of children descending upon the town to join the crusade. According to some contemporary chroniclers, there were 30,000 children, way too many to be accommodated by the town, so they had to camp outside. Many of the children were under 12 years old, both girls and boys. The majority were peasant children, but some were from noble families. There were a few older pilgrims who tagged along as well, including some priests, who joined just out of piety or pity, perhaps. Others joined in the hope of catching some free food and gifts, which were being showered upon the young crusaders as they headed south. They set off from Vendôme. Stephen, in typical homebrew cult leader fashion, travelled in far greater comforts than his followers. He had a decorated cart with a canopy to protect him from the sun, whilst almost everyone else had to walk. He was treated like a saint, with locks of his hair and snippets of his clothes collected 
as precious relics by his followers. But what started out as a happy jaunt soon descended into tragedy. It was an unusually hot summer, they had no food and little water, and depended on the charity of townsfolk for sustenance. Many of the children died on the way. Others dropped out and tried to return home. The remainder finally reached Marseille and the Mediterranean coast. If the journey down to now had been an utter disaster, what happened next, or rather, what didn't happen next, was just as bad. Surprise, surprise, the morning after they arrived in Marseille, God failed to part the sea for Stephen. So some of his followers left, but the rest hung around in the hope that God would suddenly change his mind, or at least finish his coffee break and get back to Stephen-induced sea parting ASAP. And they'd find themselves walking across the seabed of the Mediterranean to Palestine in just a few short hours. Quite what they expected to eat and drink along the way, if that had have happened, God only knows. This crusade was about as organised as if a bunch of 12-year-olds attempted to travel halfway across Europe and cross a sea to fight men twice their age. Oh, wait, that was exactly what was happening. Meanwhile, in Germany, would you believe it, a second children's crusade was underway. Inspired by the news from France of Stephen and his merry band of teenage heathen slayers, Nicholas, who lived in the Rhineland, began calling together his very own army of children to go and fight Muslims in a faraway land. His followers, also in the thousands, were a little older than Stephen's. After making their way to Genoa in Italy, like Stephen, they patiently waited for the sea to part to grant them safe passage to Palestine. Shockingly, once again, it didn't. With no miracle abound, many decided to simply stay in Genoa and become citizens, whilst others boarded ships and were never heard of again. So Nicholas took the remaining followers to Rome, where Pope Innocent basically said, Well done for being so pious and everything, but you're a bunch of children, so just go home, now. Back in Marseille, the fate of Stephen's faithful followers was hardly better. After a few days of waiting for God to part the sea, Stephen was approached by two local merchants, with the fantastic names of Hugh the Iron and William the Pig. Pig and Iron offered to take Stephen and his followers to Palestine for free, just out of the glory of God, and he believed them. In fact, he and his followers eagerly accepted the offer. Sure enough, seven ships were hired by the merchants, and the children were taken aboard. Eighteen years passed before there was any further news of the children, and when that news did arrive, it wasn't good. Would you believe it? They'd been tricked by those good merchants. And I thought shady-looking men by the name of Pig and Iron would be upstanding citizens. You never can tell. You see, not long after they'd set out on their voyage across the Mediterranean, they were met by ships from North Africa in a pre-planned rendezvous and handed over to slave traders. Most of them were never heard of again. But the priests and a few others who could read and write were bought by the governor of Alexandria, who was fascinated by European culture and language, and so they were kept in relative comfort. 
One priest was eventually allowed to go home, and it was only through him that the news of Stephen and his ill-fated followers made its way back to France in 1230. The final word in an ignominious story. Now, we'll take a short break, and very soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Frosty the snowman is riddled with bacteria. That's right, Frosty the snowman may look as pure as driven snow, but beneath that sumptuous exterior, that friendly bastard is harboring a huge quantity of bacteria. In fact, there's nothing pure about that driven snow either, as it too contains vast amounts of bacteria. And, funnily enough, it probably wouldn't exist without it. It turns out bacteria are instrumental in the creation of snow. Scientists have found that bacteria makes water freeze at higher temperatures than when no bacteria is present. This benefits a species of bacteria called pseudomonads, which feed off minerals from plants. To harvest the minerals, these bacteria create ice crystals on the plant's surface. The plant then suffers frost damage and minerals leach out. Hence, the bacteria gets its lunch. Pseudomonads thrive in plant-rich habitats, but they're commonly blown up into the sky by wind or atop rising warm air currents. Because they're so small, they get stuck inside the rain clouds. Scientists have found that a single cloud droplet can contain up to 20,000 of these bacteria. The problem is, for the bacteria, the sky is extremely inhospitable for them. Clouds are cold, nutrient scarce, and exposed to UV light that damages bacteria. So they need to find a way to get back down to Earth ASAP. The quickest way for bacteria to escape clouds is, of course, precipitation. Remember, pseudomonads have a bacteria superpower. They can create ice crystals. And up here in the clouds, that comes in very handy. For the creation of rain and snow, it's essential for tiny particles to be present in the atmosphere. Such particles, called condensation nuclei, provide a surface for water vapour to condense onto. And without them, atmosphere-bound moisture wouldn't turn into droplets. So, with the pseudomonads catalyzing the creation of condensation nuclei, ice crystals can form far easier, creating more snow and more rain. And, hey presto, the bacteria can finally catch a ride back down to terra firma. In 2008, scientists measured snow samples from around the world, including in France, Montana, the Yukon and Antarctica, and they found as much as 85% of the particles in snow were bacteria. Yummy! Pseudomonads are already used in artificial snow production and the freezing of some food products, and scientists are even suggesting they may one day be used to control the weather by being sprayed into the atmosphere to bring rain to drought-stricken areas. So, next time you get a face full of snow in a snowball fight, 
there's a high chance you'll ingest a hefty dose of bacteria along with it. That's not necessarily a bad thing, pseudomonads are generally harmless to humans, and exposure to harmless bacteria helps us to build a healthy immune system. Still, don't eat yellow snow. The last thing you want is a mouthful of bacteria and someone's piss. Fact number three. Bacteria are a lot smarter than we think. If you happened upon a film of green slime upon a rock, I doubt you'd give it the time of day. You certainly wouldn't invite it over for dinner, that would be really weird. But maybe that indistinct green goo has much more to offer than you realise, because you could be in the presence of a microbial brain. We've known for a long time that bacteria are masters of surviving. They're able to colonise virtually every environment on the planet. Their ability to quickly adapt to different habitats comes in part from the fact that microbial cells have been around for longer than any other living thing, and they've experienced many changes in environments over the billions of years of their existence. They're blessed with the ability to mutate to survive drastic environmental stresses, and they've learnt to live together in a community called a biofilm. A biofilm is a collection of bacteria that clump together to form a well-organised interactive community with advantages they wouldn't enjoy when living individually. The bacteria in the biofilm are embedded inside an extracellular matrix made of proteins, minerals, water and other tiny particles. But it also contains some matter which is derived from its host. That's you by the way. Yes, you have biofilms all over and inside your body. You're welcome for that information. Scientists have recently discovered that the individual organisms inside a biofilm communicate with one another through ion channels, an electronic signalling mechanism that's similar to the way the neurons inside your brain communicate. When a biofilm, composed of hundreds of thousands of bacteria cells, grows to a certain size, researchers discovered that the outer edges of the film, with unrestricted access to nutrients, specifically glutamate, periodically stop growing to allow that glutamate to flow to the centre of the biofilm instead, which has no direct access to the nutrients. The messages that control all of this are relayed via electrical signalling, just like a human brain. Not all biofilms are bad. Natural biofilms sit at the bottom of the food chain, sustaining insect larvae and other small invertebrates. Biofilms can be put to good use to solve environmental problems, such as breaking down contaminants from accidental oil spills, or to purify water. In our intestines, it's biofilms that help digest food and release vitamins. Half of all living matter on Earth is probably living inside a biofilm. But some biofilms are extremely problematic. Inside pipes, they cause clogging, corrosion and contamination. The tooth-rotting plaque in our mouths is a biofilm. And in medical settings, biofilms are a huge headache. Many hospital infections are caused by biofilms, and they have a tendency to become antibiotic resistant. And this is why understanding how bacteria communicate within a biofilm 
and what they're saying to each other could yield some exciting results. It may be that drugs developed to impede epilepsy and migraines might also prove effective in attacking antibiotic-resistant biofilms by stopping their microbial brain activity. Intelligence, it seems, isn't always an advantage. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thank you for listening, and I'd absolutely love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And also be sure to like, review, and subscribe. Please do leave a comment if you've learned something new from this episode. And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just bursting to share with me, then tweet it using the hashtag RIFPodcast. That's R-I-F podcast. Each week I'll choose my favourite fact from my lovely listeners and shout it out at the end of my next episode. So remember, tweet your interesting fact using the hashtag RIFPodcast. And thanks again for listening.